Matthew chapter 7, beginning of verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every tree, every good tree, bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. You see them. In the last message this past week, we looked at verses 13 and 14 where Jesus talks about that the path is narrow that leads unto eternal life. And that this is one of the unique qualities of the Christian faith. There is only one way to God, and that way is Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. And He is the life. As Jesus said, He is the door, the only door into the sheepfold. And Jesus said in John 10, 1, that anybody who seeks to climb up any other way, Jesus said, is a thief and a robber. Well, I mentioned that verses 13 and 14 mention that the narrow is the gate that leads to life, and, and there are few that find that, that that is not a prophetic passage declaring what the number of the elect will be because we have sufficient number of other passages in the Word of God that indicate that the seed of Abraham will be immense, like the stars of heaven, like the sand of the seashore. And the families of the earth will stream to Mount Zion to learn the ways of God. The knowledge of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We mentioned that Jesus is talking here in its historical context. We saw that Jesus said that he was given to the lost uh, sons of Israel to bear testimony, and that those in his time, in his ministry, there were few that found the Messiah. Now, in this regard, Jesus, in talking about the narrow gate, we see that there is a relationship to what he says here in verses 13 and 14, to his admonition in verses 15 and following. And it's a stern admonition. Beware of false prophets. Jesus says here that in this path, and here's the danger of false prophets. That path to eternal life is narrow. False prophets are those who... A prophet, mind you, is one who is to be the mouthpiece of God, the spokesman of God. They are to convey biblical truth, who God is, what He is like, and how to find that true God. And the danger of false prophets, according to Jesus, is they will keep people from finding that narrow way. Or as it were, being on that path and think you're on that path, only to be deceived. And so, there is that relationship between the false prophets in that narrow way. And we have to be very careful. 
one of the most dangerous things in all of life is to be deceived by a false prophet. To think that one is on that road, that narrow road, only to find out, as Jesus will say later on, on Judgment Day, I never knew you. How terrible to be deceived. Jesus says, beware of the false prophets. Watch out for their fruit. He says, you will know them, you will recognize them by their fruit. And we're going to see in our passage here that Jesus is going to indicate how you can know these false prophets. And it's twofold. Twofold. It's by their doctrine. You will know them to be false prophets. And it's by their way of life that encourage people to licentiousness. To sensuality, as we're going to see. This is how the scripture will set forth for us how to recognize these false prophets and to beware of them. Jesus says, beware of them, they are dangerous. So, we, we have seen that Jesus says the, the most dangerous thing about these prophets, false prophets, look at verse 15. It says, who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They disguise themselves as sheep. Now, you probably are already aware that in Matthew 25, we'll get to sometime in the future, dealing with Judgment Day, on that great day of judgment, Jesus is going to set apart all of humanity that's ever lived into two categories, his sheep and goats. His sheep are on the right hand, the goats are on the left. The sheep will go into eternal life. They are the, the elect that he has saved. The goats are all those who are the non-elect, who have deceived themselves, who have been led astray by false prophets, who never did find the, the narrow path. And so that, that's the delineation. Sheep is a reference to the people of God. And the danger, Jesus says, of the false prophets is they disguise themselves as sheep. You, you, that's their danger. They are deceitful. That's why the scripture refers to them as we're going to see. We look at all these passages. That's why they're called deceitful workers. They, they come pretending to be your friend. They're not your friend. The wolf is a predator who seeks to destroy the sheep, who wants to feed off of the sheep. And one of the jobs of a, of a shepherd in the scripture, a physical shepherd, one of his jobs was to always be vigilant to watch out for the wolves who want to come in and eat the sheep. And so the shepherd would have to fight off the wolves. Imagine how terrible it would be not to be able to see the wolf. And for the wolf to be somehow disguise itself to come in and then just wreak havoc among the sheep. And next thing you know, you don't have any sheep. And so what we see... On a spiritual sense, the scripture refers to the elders of the church as shepherds. And as we're going to see, one of the responsibilities of church elders, one of their primary responsibility is to save the sheep, to protect the sheep spiritually from false 
prophets who would destroy them. And so it's, in, it's, it's essential that you and I know what these, um, these predators are like, what these wolves in sheep's clothing, how they come to us, how they wreak havoc in the church. We need to understand that. This imagery of false prophets being ravenous wolves is the reason, when I wrote this book, Danger in the Camp, A Refutation of Heresies of the Federal Vision, Notice what I chose to put on the front cover. Superimposed a sheep, a wolf there, eyeing out the sheep to convey the idea of these <clears throat> false prophets coming in and wanting to deceive the sheep and lead them astray. And the dangers are immense because to be led astray, as the Apostle Paul says, and he and Jesus has some stern uh, <clears throat> words to say to false prophets and what they do. You see, the grave danger about the false prophet is their deceptiveness. They disguise themselves. Now, who is behind all false prophets? Well, the real energizing force behind all false prophets is none other than the great adversary, the devil. Satan. Satan is said to be the great deceiver. Satan comes and will disguise himself as angels of light. Now understand something about the, uh, what the scripture says here. The church is pictured in the Bible, and it's a delineation that I know the theologians have made. The visible church and the invisible church. The visible church are all those who profess the true religion, and along with their children, as our catechism said, in keeping with what the scripture reveals. The invisible church are all those who are the, the elect of God, those whom God is going to save at some point in space and time. Paul's the one who, who made this delineation. Oh, he's not, it didn't begin with Paul, but he brings this out in Romans chapter 9, where he says, not all of Israel is Israel. And then he gives an example. He gives an example of Jacob and Esau. Both are in the covenant. But only one is elect of God, Jacob, not Esau. And we talk about Isaac and Ishmael. Only one received were children of promise. The others were in the covenant, but they weren't of the covenant. And so we see that it is important that we understand that when we're dealing with false prophets, these false prophets will come to us, they will come into the visible church, and they will seek to wreak havoc. Now, what happens here is that there are some in the visible church, who profess the true faith, okay, yet they will fall prey to false teachers. And they will be deceived. And they will not bear fruit to eternal salvation. They were the victims of the false prophet, the false teachers. And you see, the elect of God, 
according to the scriptures, cannot be ultimately deceived. Let me just give you a passage. Matthew 24, 24. We'll develop this more when we get to exposition of Matthew 24. But Matthew 24, 24 says, for false Christ, Jesus is speaking here. He says, false Christ, false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. They will try to mislead the elect. Now, the promise there is, it says, if possible, the, the implication is, the elect of God are not going to be ultimately deceived. That's the great promise. By the way, the historical context there in Matthew 24 is that section of Matthew 24 dealing with, and verse 24 is in that, that section where it discusses the imminent destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. By the way, are you, it, it has historical meaning here, and the reason Jesus gave it is because that comment is relevant to what's going to happen in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, some 40 years later from when Jesus uh, gave that statement. And the thing about it is, and I've mentioned to you the fall of Jerusalem, when the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, and there was no escape now, and they laid siege to Jerusalem. And I've discussed, I've told you the immense suffering that was going on, the, the famine uh, and the, uh, the cannibalism that occurred a couple times there. In Jerusalem, the suffering was immense. To show you how the false Christ, Jesus says false Christ shall rise and shall, shall show signs and wonders. This is interesting. You've heard me talk about the, the, the historian Josephus. Josephus was the church historian and he was with the Roman armies. Josephus gives account Above Jerusalem, for a period of time, was a star in the form of a cross that hung over the city. Josephus bears testimony to that fact. And you know what some of the uh, people were saying in Jerusalem? Some of the false Christ said, this is a sign from God. He's going to save us. That's what they thought. There was a, when there was a time to get out of Jerusalem... Other, there were those prophets saying, no, no, God is on our side. God will not forsake Jerusalem. And they bore, they were false prophets. And here, here you have this sign in the heavens. Josephus says there actually was there. And they thought that would save them. No, it's actually a sign of their imminent doom. Well, <clears throat> true believers cannot be ultimately deceived. Though attempts are made to deceive them. Let me mention something to you. I remember when uh, I've told you my, my conversion story, when I was converted at the University of Utah, and then I transferred to East Tennessee State University, but I didn't have the same organization there, and I was on my own. I didn't know the importance of really, though we went to church every Sunday, <clears throat> I was a very young babe in Christ, and I was very prone to anything that could be taught to me. And so I, I think I mentioned to you, I was sucked into Jehovah's Witness literature, Garner Ted Armstrong, the Worldwide Church of God literature. And it was only uh, by God's grace that God led me out of that through the leader of our campus organization who brought me the book, The Kingdom of the Cults, 
And there my, uh, my two groups were in there, and by God was gracious to show me the errors. I was a young, I was a young Christian. I believe I was genuinely converted, but I just didn't know. I was subject to anybody, and I, the, I was, I got a hold of the wrong group. And I was being led astray, and as the leader of the group says, we got to deal with John over here because he's got some wild ideas in these Bible studies. And I had wild ideas because of, of these groups, these false prophets, these cults, because that's what Garner Ted Armstrong was. It was a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses is a cult. And I was buying into it. But God was gracious to lead me out of it. And speaking about my college days, Part of my sermon preparation ordained by God for this week. I have a heart broken this week. I have been distressed this week. An old friend, part of that ministry in college, I'll just keep his name anonymous, but has apostatized to Roman Catholicism. We were close in college. Our ministry was tight. We loved one another. Did all these things together. This, young, this guy, we shared after the leaders of the ministry moved on, he and I shared leadership for two years in that campus organization. We rented a house together for two years, ministering to college students. I was a groomsman in his wedding. He was a groomsman in my wedding. We went to the same seminary, a reformed seminary. He'll end up pastoring a few Presbyterian churches, then become an Episcopalian uh, rector before resigning to manage a bookstore. And now, as of a year ago, he confirmed that he and his wife have gone to Rome. You know where it all started? Well, it's how I found out my latest book, The Eustic Evolution. He, he told me he was going to get the book. I was advertising for the book. He said, I'll get the book. And he said, I'm going to give you a scathing, scathing review. I thought, is he serious? You know, I don't know. Well, sure enough, he has given me a scathing review, point-by-point point refutation of the book. He hadn't published it. But, you know, <clears throat> he made comments about the Protestant schism. And I wrote him and said, what about the Protestant schism? I, I and there were things uh, on Facebook that I was concerned about. Well, he confirmed we are now Roman Catholics. We've had interchanges. Our last correspondence. I said, what about all these things that Rome believes? He has bought in to every single one. He prays to the Virgin Mary now. He has renounced Sola Scriptura. He says, where is it taught in the Word of God, John? Images of the Virgin Mary. Of course, God gave us those images to help us out. Every item of Rome he has believed. I have sent him at least two emails begging him, please, come back. At the last one... I said, at the risk of our friendship, I, I plead with you. The danger is so great that you're in. Please, come back. And he believes that I am in darkness. I need to be illumined. 
Had I ever known this? Not in a million years. I know the dangers. Right? The dangers are as Hebrews tells us. Turn to Hebrews 10. Let me show you the danger that a person can be in. Look at verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant which was he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him and who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the thing that concerns me the most of such, like I was just referring to, is once you renounce Jesus as the sole means of salvation and of salvation by grace through faith alone, what other sacrifice for sins is there? What other Savior are you going to run to? I know that the imminent danger. I pray that God will have mercy on he and his wife's soul. I pray that. I don't know. Odds are they won't, if the Scripture holds true for the most part. Because there's no other Savior you can run to. See the danger? You see, the book of Hebrews, so those are at, of us that are at the family conference, we found out, the book of Hebrews was written as a warning to those who were in danger of falling back into Judaism. And that's what it's a warning of. And those who profess Christ, but then fall back into a work salvation paradigm, which is what Judaism was, what sacrifice for sins is there then? There is no other Savior of sinners except Jesus. As I said, the great deceiver is Satan. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to pick up, let's start at verses 1 through 4, then I'll pick up at verses 12 through 15. 2 Corinthians, beginning at verses 1, about verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy for I betrothed you to one husband back to Christ, I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Then look down at verse 
12. But when I am doing, I will continue to do, that I may cut off opportunity for those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Now, who was Paul referring to there? He was referring to the Judaizers, those who were insisting that you had to submit to the law of Moses in order to be saved, particularly that you had to submit to the rite of circumcision in order to be saved. Turn with me to Galatians. Take a look at Galatians chapter 1. Look at verse 6 to verse 9. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed, meaning anathema. Let him be condemned forever, is what to be accursed means. Again, the book of Galatians is a polemic and argument against the Judaizers. That is the purpose of the book. And what were the Judaizers doing? They were presenting a works salvation paradigm. You got to submit to the law of Moses in order to be saved. To confirm that's what the Judaizers were doing, Turn with me to Acts chapter 15, look at verses 1 and 2. And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and other of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. And that's what led to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And they settled it for there, citing the apostles and elders, sided with Paul and Barnabas, and saying that salvation is by faith in Christ, and that it is not by the works of the law. And as Peter will get up in the Council of Jerusalem, and he was the one... <clears throat> who primarily was the apostle to the Jews, he himself said that we should not expect the Gentiles to bear such a load that we ourselves as Jews could not endure. And so the Council of Jerusalem, being led of the Holy Spirit, will condemn the Judaizers as false prophets, false teachers. Paul referred to them, by the way, if you look over at Philippians chapter 3. Turn to Philippians 3. Look at 
Look at verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Is he talking about the Judaizers, who put confidence in the flesh. He says they are the false circumcision. They are false prophets. Beware of them. And so what we see here, Jesus tells us, beware of the false prophets. Watch out for their fruit. Now, their fruit, as I indicated earlier, what is their fruit going to consist of? Their doctrinal errors and also their encouragement to ungodly living in their way of, their way of life. Now, you may not find both of those things in the same false prophet. You may not find a false prophet who is guilty of great doctrinal error necessarily living a reprobate life. Okay? But that doesn't mean he's still not a false prophet. But there, another sign of the false prophet is we're going to see later on in the message are those who... The Bible gives a scathing condemnation of who encourage people to licentious living. And we have plenty of examples in our day of that. Now, with regard to Jesus saying, you will know them by their fruits. John Calvin, in understanding how to recognize a false prophet, he will say, first of all, the first fruit of the false prophet, he says, is the manner of teaching in the first place, in the quote. What are they teaching? That's what you have to be aware of. It is doctrinal error. It is doctrinal error that assaults the gospel of Christ. And as Paul said, this was true of the Judaizers. Satan wants to distort the gospel, if he can. He will have his false apostles, as Paul said in St. Corinthians 11. They will disguise themselves as being in the faith. That's why this, Jesus says they are a wolf in sheep's clothing. You don't know they're the enemy at first. You don't know it. You think they're your friend. You think they're a good shepherd. But they're not. That's why they're dangerous. So when people say... We don't want a church that emphasizes doctrine. We want a church that emphasizes practical Christianity. Look, we all want practical Christianity. But brethren, holiness of life is essential. But holiness of life flows out of sound doctrine according to the Bible. If I don't have sound doctrine, I'm going to be impeded in my ability, according to the Bible, to have a godly life. And we're going to see one of the, the, the bad fruit of the false prophets is their ungodly living. And so we've got to see 
that true doctrine leads to godliness. And without sound doctrine, there is a great uh, danger of a person being led astray from the truth and away from the narrow way. Let's take a look at some passages in the epistle of John. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, beginning at verse 18 through 24, and then verses 26 and 27. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have remained with us. But they went out in order that it may be shown that they are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. And you all know. You do know the truth. and But because you do know it, and because no lies are the truth, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and the Father. And then verse 26 and 27. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie. And just as it is taught you, you abide in him. The Antichrist is not a man. The Antichrist is many who teach that Jesus is not who he really is. That's the Antichrist. You have doctrinally need to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. You have to believe he's the eternal Son of God. You have to believe he's deity. If you don't believe that, you're lost. That's a doctrine you have to believe. Look at Second John. Let's turn over to Second John, verses seven through eleven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. There are deceivers, he says. If you don't believe the right things about Jesus, then that person is deceived. These wolves in sheep's clothing that Jesus talks about, these false prophets, they are the ones who seek to deceive through their false teaching. Now, here's the problem. Some of those who are false prophets, you were to ask them, 
Do you recognize yourself as a false prophet? Well, of course not. <laughs> I'm the right good guy. You're the bad guy. They, they don't think of themselves necessarily as the false prophets. You see, that's, they are self-deceived. Most, self, uh, most false prophets are self-deceived. They think they have a truth. But it's not a truth in conformity with the Scriptures. What do you do when you have someone like that? Part of the trouble with the friend I was just telling you about, he's already said, John, show me where sola scriptura is taught in the Bible. So I give a few verses. No, that's not what it teaches. What is Scripture? It's his tradition, with Rome, tradition is elevated on the same uh, par with Scripture. Well, once you do that, then you can believe whatever you want. So whatever is church tradition is okay. How am I going to argue with that? I can't. Because they will always come back and say, our church tradition says this. I'm led of the Spirit. He said he's led of the Spirit. John, you're the one in darkness. You see why I'm so grieved? There are those who are self-deceived. And you know the danger is they will arise among the elders of the church. Turn with me to Acts 20. Look at verse 28 and following. Now the, the context here is Paul is meeting with the elders of Ephesus. He will, know, he will never see them. Paul will minister to Ephesus for three years. He is going to be departing to go to Jerusalem. And he knows that he will never see them again. But he gathers the elders of the church of Ephesus for one last admonition, and here it is. Verse 28. Notice what he says in his last meeting with these elders. Here's what he says. Be on the guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish you with tears. And now I commend you to the God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. His parting words, from among yourselves, you elders, will come elders, wolves in sheep's clothing that will destroy, if possible, the flock. And historically, that's what happened. In many respects. See, that's why Jesus says the false prophets are so, we have to be aware of. He says they come as in sheep's clothing. You don't know their dangers. It's the, it's the elders, it's the pastors who are intelligent. Who are your friends. Who you don't think will betray the gospel, but who betray the gospel. 
You know what one of the foremost duties of an elder are? Turn to uh, Titus chapter 1. Look at verses 9 through 11. Titus chapter 1. He's in the list of what are the qualifications for a church elder. And one of the qualifications is verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. As I said, a shepherd must protect the flock, a physical shepherd. A spiritual shepherd must protect spiritually the flock of God, the visible church. He must protect the visible church from those who would corrupt the gospel. Notice he mentioned those of the circumcision. He's talking about the Judaizers here in one. Those who say you've got to keep the laws in order to be saved. He says you've got to silence those men. Because if you let it go, it will, they will eat up the flock. I, I, I don't relish in the fact. I remember when I was in Arizona and I was speaking at that conference about theistic evolution. I made some comment there and I said, uh, well, you know, this is another battle we have to fight. But I said, I don't like fighting these battles in one sense. I, I, Although I said you would not know that if you looked at my, some of my books out there. But brethren, when a person's soul is in jeopardy, if when the gospel has been corrupted, what kind of shepherd would I be if I don't say something? At least my friend who wrote me here this week says, at least John, I appreciate your concern for me. And your prayers for me. He said that twice. However, I said, please don't tell me that you have renounced justification by faith. But he has. Because that's when the doctrines of Rome denies it. John, you don't live by the ancient councils. I said, oh, you mean the council of Trent? who anathematized the reformers for their justification by faith alone? I said, do you believe Trent? I said, do you believe Trent was right? Do you believe that we are justified by our works? I said, please don't tell me that you believe that. Because the last thing that I want to do, the last thing that you want to do on Judgment Day is to plead for your own righteousness. That's a scary thing. Like I said, the passage we're dealing with in Matthew 7 is a scary passage. Because there are going to be a lot of people deceived. Because Jesus says, even though you did things in my name, and you cast out demons, and you did many marvelous works, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's a scary thing. And to come to judgment day... Touting my own righteousness is a frightening thing because I know I'm a sinner. 
And I said, cursed is everyone. I pled with him in these passages I shared. I said, you know these passages. You went to seminary with me. You know these passages. Cursed are those who don't abide by all the things in the law to perform it. You have to keep the law perfectly to be, in order to be saved. And, but that's why we're justified by faith in Jesus who kept the law for us. One of the great theologians of the 20th century was uh, J. Gresham Machen, founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Machen will die of cancer. When he was dying of cancer, he wrote to his good friend, John Murray, who was another one of the great theologians of the 20th century. As, as Machen was dying, he wrote his friend, John Murray, and he says, Thank God for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it, end of quote, is what he said to John Murray. The act of obedience of Christ is that theological truth that Jesus kept the law for us perfectly because I have to and you have to give God a perfect life or you will be destroyed forever. But you see, I can't do it. You can't do it either. You can't give God a perfect obedience. You can't. That's why the scripture says, Cursed are all those who don't abide by all the things written in the law to perform it. I need a champion. You need a champion. You need a substitute who will do it for you. And praise God, Jesus is that great substitute who did it for us. So that on judgment day, I'm going to be pleading the grace and the mercy of Jesus. That's what I'm going to be pleading. Not this idea of my own righteousness. God forbid but you see, that's what Rome teaches. You can make it according to your own works. That is scary. That is scary. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 13. Talking about how to identify a false prophet. Look at Deuteronomy 13, beginning at verse 1 through verse 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you, to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from among you. You know what's incredible about this passage is this. Well, elsewhere in the Old Testament, it talks about one of the, uh, the signs of a, a true prophet is that whatever they say comes true. If it doesn't come true, they're not a, a true prophet, and therefore you can stone them. Here's an instance where it says, even if their prophecy comes true and they give you signs and wonders. Now, that's impressive, isn't it? So what they said comes true. 
And they, they, they're, they're miracle workers of some sort, it says. You still don't listen to them if, in their doctrine, they tell you to serve another God besides Jehovah. If they are leading you to a false god, it doesn't matter if whatever they said comes to pass. It doesn't matter if they give you miracles. Don't listen to them because God, it says, is testing you to see if you're going to follow him and him alone. So you see, their doctrine is essential. Just because they can do amazing things doesn't mean they're right. It is the scripture. And the again, the frightening thing is that if you hold something else up to be whatever scripture is, you see the debate with this friend of mine, uh, and I said, I'm not going to get into a large debate. I said, I'm not going to do that. I will address some things, but I'm not going to go with that because you know as much as I do. I'm not going to end it there. But I said, if tradition is, is there and, and, and we don't know what the canon is because he says, John, what, what is the canon? What's the canon of Scripture? So you see, Rome has its uh, canon that's different than the Protestants. And then if they're the true church, because they're ancient, who am I to argue about praying to Mary? She's a dispenser of grace. Rome says she's a co-mediator with Jesus. God forbid. But that's what Rome teaches. That's what the tradition teaches. See, at that point, there's nothing. There's nothing you can do if we're debating on different scriptures, different traditions. See, in this regard, you got to watch out for the false prophet who teaches you doctrine that is errant. But I said there's another part of false prophets you have to watch out for. Turn with me to Jude, to the book of Jude. There's only one chapter in Jude. Let's begin at verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving his people out of the land of Egypt subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, as these indulged in gross immorality, and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as examples and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same manner, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh, and reject authority, revile angelic magistries. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, and argued about the body of Moses, and did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men, 
Revile the things which they do not understand, and these things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone astray. They've gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed along into eternal, uh, into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, with which they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without uh, water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness is reserved forever. The false teachers. Who, in this case, who turned the grace of God into licentiousness. Now, to show you the companion, a really companion passage to Jude 3, to Jude, turn over to 2 Peter 2, and you'll see it says very much the same thing. We'll just pick certain parts out of it. 2 Peter chapter 2. Notice how it starts in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And then he goes on and talks about all of these. And then look, look at uh, something about these false teachers. Look at verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Verse 18, for speaking out of arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. You know, when I was in Arizona, speaking in February, what the pastor of the church told me, he says, I've received information in a Christian ministry, quote, that are now questioning whether adultery is all that bad. I said, are you serious? He said, I'm serious. They're now wanting to call into question whether adultery is all that bad. Notice the two examples in Jude and in 2 Peter 2, he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So what does it say about those in the churches who now are telling us you can be a homosexual, a practicing homosexual, and be a Christian and make it. What does that say about them? A false teacher who does what? Promotes licentiousness. Just like the scripture says. Talking about the Eustic evolution, you think that's some uh, doctrine out here that doesn't uh, impact your life? Really? One of the men I feature in my book... <coughs> Peter Enns, who was a former professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary before they finally kicked him out because of his book on inspiration. 
which he denied, essentially, the inspiration of scriptures. It took ten years. They will finally get rid of him. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, it's his book that I read called The Evolution of Adam, which promotes theistic evolution. Now, to tell you, I said, I, I ended with him, of all the compromises, because I said, this is where we'll end up. It doesn't have to end up with everybody, but let me show you where it logically ended up. I'm going to give you a quote from this man, a former professor, and what he now teaches. In his book, he has thesis number nine. I want you to listen very carefully to what he says. He didn't, now, first of all, he doesn't believe that Adam and Eve were actually historical figures. He says it doesn't matter. He says the gospel is not impacted simply because they were not really historical figures. Here's what he says. I'm, these are direct quotes. He says, A, <clears throat> a true Reproachment between evolution and Christianity requires a synthesis, not simply adding evolution to existing formulations. Evolution is a serious challenge to how Christians have traditionally understood at least three central issues of the faith, the origin of humanity, of sin, and death. Sin and death are universal realities. The Christian tradition has generally attributed the cause to Adam. But evolution removes that cause, as Paul understood it, and thus leaves open the question of where sin and death have come from. More than that, the very nature of what sin is and why people die is turned on its head. Some characteristics that Christians have sought of Listen carefully. Some Christians, some characteristics that Christians have thought of as sinful, for example, an evolutionary scheme, the aggression and dominance associated with survival of the fittest, and sexual promiscuity to perpetuate one's gene pool are understood as means of ensuring survival. Likewise, death is not the enemy to be defeated. Death is not the unnatural state introduced by disobedient people in a primordial garden. Actually, it is the means that promotes the continued evolution of life on this planet and ensures the workable population numbers. Death may hurt, but it is evolution's ally. End of quote. I hope you saw that he says... Evolution teaches survival of the fittest. And we as Christians need to reevaluate our view of sin in light of survival of the fittest. And survival of the fittest means you've got to perpetuate a viable gene pool. And if, if adultery accomplishes that purpose, then by all means. Did you know? You heard the name Margaret Sanger? She is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood, who is that godless organization that has promoted the death of innocent children from the beginning. 
Margaret Sanger was a committed evolutionist. Margaret Sanger was one of the first to advocate what we call eugenics. You know what eugenics is? Eugenics is the, the field that, that seeks to limit population by whatever means is necessary. Margaret Sanger advocated the destruction of this uh, handicapped people. She was a racist of immense proportions. In fact, the Ku Klux Klan invited her to speak to their organizations because she said the black race is an inferior race and we need to limit that. Margaret Sanger, you have to read about Margaret Sanger. She was a vile, wicked woman who was an evolutionist, but she was consistent. And Peter ends promotes the same thing. You want to get upset if you're not already upset? You know the name Ken Ham? Ken Ham is the answers in Genesis. He's a good guy. He believes uh, in creation like we believe. A major homeschool organization, national organization, disinvited Ken Ham to its homeschool meeting. Because Ken Ham has gone on record of being critical of Peter Inns. And you know who was invited instead? Peter Inns. This guy. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Ideas have consequences. False prophets. False prophets will deceive people with their doctrinal errors that pervert the gospel. They will deceive people by a gospel that encourages, as the scripture says, greediness. Those sign to send in your, your, your handprint and write in what you want and we'll pray for you and God will give you whatever you want. You want to, you want to, Mercedes, just say it. We'll give it to you. Go on and on. Jesus says, beware of the false prophets. They're out there. They're like ravenous wolves, and they will destroy you if you listen to them. This is dangerous stuff. And like I said, it came home this week to me in a way that it just grieves my heart. Brethren, the war is real. It's real. And souls are at stake. Let's pray.